1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York, 10 a.m. here in London, and here's your top five at five. Stocks searching for direction to kick off the week as Wall Street kicks it off in record territory. Elon Musk taking to Twitter, asking his followers if he should unload 10% of Tesla and foot the nearly $15 billion tax bill that would go with it. President Biden set to sign the first half of his signature infrastructure bill into law. Democrats finally come together, still in limbo, a nearly $2 trillion social spending plan. Call it the winter of Europe's discontent. We take a closer look at what might be in store for Europe and the UK as energy prices continue to surge to near record levels and new york city's next mayor doubling down on his support for crypto and the big apple it is monday november 8th and this is worldwide exchange well good morning good afternoon or good evening and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching i am brian sullivan and all this week we are right there putting the worldwide and worldwide exchange we are live from london and we are not just hosting the show from this fine city but we're also doing some big days focusing on what could be a very expensive and maybe very dangerous energy crisis around the world this winter as the uk europe and china all scramble to buy natural gas and even coal today we're going to lay out how we got here and where it likely leads that is all day here on cnbc but right now we have got a lot to do here on worldwide exchange or it's a very humane 10 a.m., I might say. Let's get a check on your Monday money, and it's looking like a decent start to the week. We are seeing futures on the Dow higher. The Nasdaq will call it maybe down one-tenth of one percent. All this really has been strength, building on strength. All the major averages are at or just off record highs. And check this out. The Nasdaq is on a 10-day win streak. If we close higher today, no indication which way we're going to go right now, then we will tie the 11 day win streak set back all the way in December of 2019. Sounds like that could be an RBI. Anyway, the Dow also on a big weekly win streak as well. A lot of streaks at stake this week. All right, part of this because bond yields remain low. You thought yields are going to move up on inflation concerns? Think again. 10 year yield below one and a half percent. And we continue to watch crypto, specifically ether. Topping 4,700 for the first time ever. It is now at more than 500% this year. If you put money in Ether a year ago, congratulations. You've made a lot of money, at least on, well, I'd say on paper, but it's crypto. So uh, anyway, around the world, a mixed picture in Asia overnight as well. But not big moves either way. China with its latest export numbers showing a surge of 27.1% in October versus a year ago. Wow. Wow. Also, buying a ton of coal, by the way. And here in Europe, we've got a mixed trade. None of the major averages moving too big. Got the Cacaron up a little bit. A footsie here in London down just a touch. All right. A lot more to do on the markets in moments. But right now, let's kick off some of the key headlines that you need to know to begin your week. Christina Partsanovalos is back at CNBC HQ. With those, good morning, Christina.
2: Good morning, Brian. So let's talk about New York. New York City Mayor-elect Eric Adams is doubling down on his support for cryptocurrencies. After tweeting last week, he will take his first three paychecks in Bitcoin. Adams on CNN's State of the Union this weekend said his tweet is a rally cry as he wants to make New York City a global hub for crypto innovation.
3: That is what we must do, open our schools to teach the technology and teach this new way of thinking when it comes down to paying for goods and services. I want to make sure that this city becomes a center of innovation, no matter what that innovation is.
2: Bitcoin is up more than 100 percent this year and trading right now on an all-time high of 66,088 cents. So, yes, definitely higher. Uh, An accounting firm, we're switching gears now, accounting firm PwC says it will create 20,000 new jobs in China over the next five years as part of a $1.25 billion investment that will double its presence in that country. The plan would double the company's company's China workforce and make it almost twice the size of its U.K. operations, which currently employs some 22,000 people. And after nearly 20 months, the U.S. is lifting pandemic-era travel restrictions. Starting today, the COVID travel ban is replaced by a new set of rules that will allow international visitors from more than 30 countries in Europe, as well as Canada and Mexico, into the countries so long as they show proof of vaccination and a recent negative COVID test. The restrictions were first put in place by the Trump administration in March 2020 and later expanded by President Biden. And I've seen uh, Delta, American Airlines, Brian, they're both saying that they're expecting at least almost 50 percent increase in international travelers. I've heard your experience wasn't the greatest.
1: Well, it's fine. I mean, listen, it was uh, for those that want to come this way. It's a little confusing. I've just done it. I'll tell you how it is, at least on United you got to submit a negative PCR test within 48 hours, upload your vaccination card. So I did that. I landed here. I just took a test, a rapid test, which you have to upload to the government within two days. They call it the the day two test. And then I've got to take another test within 72 hours of coming back. So I will have been tested three times in probably seven days. Nothing wrong with that. But that's how it works. And I tried to get home earlier, by the way, looked at changing my flights. The ticket price went up 250%. So the demand is, is definitely there, Christina.
2: No, no, I, I have no doubt. I'm thankful because I'm a foreign national, so I wasn't allowed to even go to Europe or anything until today. So now I can travel and come back, but I'm hoping lines won't be bad because uh, I fly out tomorrow.
1: We've got our eyes on you crazy Canucks. Trust me, we're <laughs> watching you, Canada. Just waiting for you to strike. Christina, thank we're you very partners, much. We're your partners, your neighbors Appreciate to it. the
2: north. Thank you. <laughs> Except
1: oh, yeah. I'm here in the okay. United States, so All forget right. that. Thanks. We'll see we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. All right. Back down to the markets with the Dow coming off its fifth straight winning week in all three major indexes, continuing to notch new records as we head into the final few weeks of the year. But could all this be scuttled by what is happening in D.C.? Or will the big infrastructure bill and maybe the social spending bill propel markets to more new highs? Let's find out from a man who knows D.C. as well as anybody. That is Michael Farr, president and CEO of Farr, Miller and Washington, chief market strategist at Hightower Advisors, also a CNBC contributor. Michael, it's good to, quote, see you from afar. See what I did there. Um, We've got this infrastructure bill. That's roads and bridges. That's a lot of spending. Social spending bill there as well. Whatever one thinks politically of these things, forget that. Will a trillion dollars of just kind of invented new made-up money going into the markets for the 10 years, just continue to propel us to new records? Or is inflation just going to tear the whole thing down?
4: Good morning, Brian. Uh, in in London and from early here in the United States. Yeah, I think you're I think you're on, on right. You, you framed it properly. Um, we've got more money going in. We've got an inflation problem. We've got markets making new highs. And by the way, the markets are still a little less expensive than they were ago, a year ago on a price to earnings basis. But we're shoving more money into this market. There's a lot of liquidity in the system. The consumer has a lot of money. I think you're going to see one of the best holiday spending shopping seasons in years. Uh, consumers have cash, so prices moving higher. Everything now, in my opinion, depends on what the Fed does. Will they hold back too long? I fear that they will. I feel that I fear they're not being aggressive enough. But even with this taper, that's still another half a trillion six hundred. I'm sorry. Yeah, half a trillion six hundred billion dollars that they're going to continue yeah. to buy. So they they continue to buy that. You get another trillion. It won't all come in the same year. And infrastructure, more cash into the system clearly increases that demand. And that puts more pressure on inflation, which puts more pressure on the Fed.
1: Yeah. Okay. so there's so much to unpack there, Michael, by the way. So we have got and listen, infrastructure, the roads are terrible. The bridges are terrible. New Jersey transit's terrible. Amtrak is terrible. We look forward to fixing all of these things. But you're going to be doing it in a market where you're going to be buying commodities at record highs for the next 3, 5, 10 years. So we're going to be paying a lot more for copper, steel, all that stuff. I get it. But it does go to the inflation story. We've got a 10-year yield under 1.5% again. The market doesn't seem to care about inflation now. Will it?
4: Yeah, I, I think, Brian, it will. And And that 10-year yield... I was talking to other folks, uh, some of the halftime report uh, uh, investment committee gang last week. We were all kind of puzzled with if inflation and if the Fed's tapering and if we've got all of this going on, Why is that 10-year yield uh, 147? Uh, It's a bit of a head-scratcher, but the bond market's message is they're not as sanguine about a rosy future for the market or certainly for the bonds and interest rates as we go over the next couple of months, particularly the growth. So we've got this big supply chain issue, and uh, we've got more purchasing. Uh, We've got the supply chain with prices going higher does yep. that end at some point? Is capitalism solve that problem so that we get back to, what, 2.5% GDP growth? If you look at growth of number of employed plus productivity, you get yeah. back to 2 2.5% GDP growth.
1: Very quickly, Scott Miner to Guggenheim told me at Milken, uh, we were doing a panel at the Milken conference, that he didn't think that interest rates would go above 2% forever. You agree? Quickly.
4: No, I don't agree. I think we get above 3% on that 10-year. It could be a year, but I think clearly out there, yeah. And But I think GDP for 2022, still a strong number, okay. 5 or
1: 6%. Sounds like we got a debate. Michael Farr, love having you on Worldwide Exchange. I know it's early, but we love you for it, Michael. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Brian. Love being All right, here. We
1: are just getting started. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right, we are just getting started on this Monday. When we come back, a closer look at Europe's potential energy crisis, including... What has gone wrong, where we go, and why winter could be much, much worse? Plus, Elon Musk putting a part of his massive Tesla stake on the line and a potential $15 billion tax bill, we'll explain. And later on, Disney with a new push to boost its streaming subscriber base and a big pricing cut for you. But is it kind of a bad sign? A lot more to do when Worldwide Exchange rolls on right after this.
5: at least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, and good Monday morning. We are live in London. Beautiful look there at St. Paul's. The city skyline just continues to grow, kind of like New York, or maybe more like Miami. All right, well, we are in London all week long, and one big reason why is that there is a very real chance that the U.K., continental Europe, or both, could face a severe energy crunch this winter. Natural gas prices on the spot market have skyrocketed lately. Now, for years, they bounced between a low of around 11 pounds or in lockdowns to a high of 76 back in 2018, which people considered outrageously high at the time. That is that bump in sort of the middle left of your screen. Well, look at that. Now they're at 189. And while that is just off the recent highs, it is still a very rough situation because utilities have to buy natural gas at these prices. With pricing caps imposed by the government, they can't pass along all of those added costs, which means many utilities are going to lose a lot of money, which means, as of today, about half of the smaller British gas and utility providers have closed up, literally disappeared almost overnight in the last month leaving customers wondering who will pick up their power and the bill. Though the weather has warmed up a bit in the last few days and it's been windy, that's a good sign, there are very real concerns about what happens if the winter is a very cold one, like 2018, and real concerns that many Britons could actually lose their lives due to the cold. So how did the UK get into this situation? Well, people want to blame one thing or another based on their political beliefs. But it's much more than that. First, the UK closed its main natural gas storage facility called Rough 4 years ago. So they have almost no long-term storage. Then, yet some weird weather. The wind simply didn't blow, and the wind turbines didn't produce enough power. That left the UK, which relies more on natural gas to heat homes than any country in the world, with few options except to go buy natural gas on the spot market at those high prices we just showed you. And finally, there was Brexit which has hurt trade options and power deals and even labor to try to help ease the potential shortages. Bottom line, it's kind of a perfect storm, and there's a lot of hoping and praying for a warmer winter this year. All right, let's tie this all together and bring about it with Sri Kochu Govindan, Senior Economist at Aberdeen Standard. And Sri, appreciate you coming on the program. It's actually some of your own work and your research that I've been reading in the last couple of weeks that got me here uh, those arguments that I kind of laid out were some of the points that you have made as well. If you were to point out the really uh, the risks to this winter and how we got here, what would you say?
5: Well, thank you, Brian, that those are some very good points there. I just say the weather is has been quite key uh, in, and it will be for the next six to seven months. This is going to be a key driver. for for inflation, not just for the UK, but across n- many countries. So first of all, we've had the demand side of the issue uh, with weather where we had very poor, had very poor winter uh, in Europe uh, last year. We had a hot summer in the US and Canada this year. Um, we had stockpiling by some Asia um, countries as well for gas storage. Um, and also this comes at a time when industrial pr- production has been picking up and industrial activity has been picking up and economies have been reopening. So the demand side of the story has been quite strong. But as you say, um, the weather has affected supply as well. So it's been very intermittent um, across uh, the um, solar and hydro uh, backdrop. And that's led to a reliance on natural gas prices. But this is a seasonal story. There's also a longer term structural story here as well, which has led mm-hmm. to tight energy markets. And that's really the, the climate change, regulatory change. And this process of decarbonisation has been a long run trend for many countries leading to the current shortages that we're seeing at the moment.
1: And that is the reason that we are here, Sri, and that it's it's we care about the U.K. We care about all of our friends and viewers here, certainly in continental Europe. It could be a very dangerous winter for many people, particularly lower income ones that simply cannot afford to pay their bills. But to your point, this is a structural story. The United States, yes. states like California are undergoing these incredible and incredibly important, by the way, long term shifts. But there is a lesson here, which is that the transition has to be done smartly. And carefully, yes, does indeed. it not?
5: Exactly. Exactly right. That's right. Um, what we're seeing is a situation where there are very few options for substituting away um, from different types of uh, energy sources. And there are some countries that are very dependent on one particular type or not. Or not Some are dependent on nuclear, some on gas, etc. So it really depends on the country here. But what we have seen is a a drawdown in gas inventories across Europe, and obviously you've already mentioned the UK, that switching across and substituting between energy sources has been very difficult. So switching between gas and coal has been very difficult. Now part of this is because obviously the decarbonization uh, process has led to an underinvestment in coal. Coal mines have closed across China and China has been one of the key drivers behind this increase in uh, natural gas and liquid natural gas demand as well, because they have been trying to switch households and factories away from dependency on coal towards natural gas. And this is a very slow process. Obviously, this winter does lead to the issue of some price spikes. China is one of those markets that um, countries that has been, um, rather than having long-term contracts, they have been dipping into the spot markets. And that's been pushing up prices across gas and coal and the overall general complex. But yes, there is a story of underinvestment here.
1: And it goes into the long-term global inflation story. Again, a lot of our viewers in the the U.S. right now may be waking up and saying, well, I I worry because I've got friends or family over there, but how does this impact us? It impacts everybody because energy is not simply a regional story. China's buying a lot of liquefied natural gas, which is great, except that takes some of the supplies away from Europe, which means they've got to buy more coal which means they take it away from India, which relies on coal as much as any other country in the world outside of China, which means U.S. producers could make some money if we could export it. But inflation becomes a global phenomenon. It is all connected.
5: It is indeed. Indeed. And also there are some connections here with the supply chain stories or transportation of fuels. That's all feeding into this story. So it does seem that over the next six to seven months, um, these energy price rises along with other drivers such as supply chains and transport prices, um, these energy prices are going to be fueling headline inflation numbers across a number of different countries. And then on top of that, if we do get a cold snap across Europe or the northern hemisphere winter months, we do get a cold snap, then that will lead to greater volatility in energy prices and potential price spikes that then feed into further inflation. But again, this varies across country. This is something we've been looking into in a lot of detail, looking at country by country, energy sources. What are they using? What are the retail price caps? What are the timings of those? Um, How much is actually passed through to consumers? Because consumers are protected to some extent. But the flip side of that is that then um, the producers are impacted. And we're seeing this, as you mentioned, in the UK, some yep. of the power producers have gone under. In China, they've been power rationing as well. So there is an impact on not just inflation, but actual activity um, over the coming months that are a yep.
1: risk. Half, half, half the smaller producers here, or at least utility companies, have failed in the last month. And they're small. But I've talked to people, Sri, that believe some of the big ones could go and almost have a financial crisis-like moment. On the utility side, we're here all week. coach of Govindan, we really appreciate you coming on, Street Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, it's a big story, folks, one with many moving parts over the next couple of weeks and months. All right, still on deck. It could be the costliest tweet in history. What Elon Musk is asking his followers and why it might matter a lot to Tesla stock.
5: At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
1: Welcome or welcome back and good Monday morning. This is probably the most bizarre business story of the year. If it's not, it's got to be one of them. Tesla stock down about 5.5% right now, but it's not on earnings or any fundamentals. It's because over the weekend, Elon Musk got on Twitter, probably a never good idea, And talked about taxes. And in doing so, he put out a Twitter poll asking his nearly 63 million followers whether he should sell a chunk of Tesla stock in part to avoid what could be even higher taxes down the road if the Biden bill passes. Robert Frank joining us now with more on how much Musk may be on the hook for. And I I got a lot of questions. Do the thing. Let's chat about it because this is a weird story.
6: Yeah, it's weird, but not unexpected if you've been following his compensation as I have. Brian, as you mentioned, 3.5 million people voted in that Twitter poll. 58% supported that sale of 10% of his shares in Tesla. Musk tweeting, I will abide by the results of this poll, whichever way it goes. So he's probably selling, but he likely would have sold anyway. And that is because he faces a tax bill of up to $15 billion. $15 billion. Now, in 2012, uh, 2012, he was awarded a compensation plan that granted him options on 23 million shares. Those expire next August. The strike price on those options is about $6 a share. Tesla now trading at over $1,200 a share. So his gain on those options will be around $28 billion. Now, the options... They are taxed as income and they were earned in California. So his combined federal and state tax rate on that gain is about 54%, which would mean his tax bill is going to be around $15 billion. So, how will he pay it? Well, he doesn't take a salary. He's always been stock rich and cash poor. So, in order to pay this, he would only have to sell about 12 million shares. That would pay the tax. And he would still wind up with an additional 10 million shares in Tesla after the options exercise. Now, theoretically, he could have also borrowed against his existing shares to raise the cash, especially since his Tesla stake now worth over $200 billion. But he's already pledged more than 92 million shares for personal loans. And as he tweeted out over the weekend, I do not take a salary or bonus from anywhere. I only have stock. This is the only way for me to pay taxes personally is to sell that stock. So, Brian... Many of us who many of us who've been following this for months knew that this tax bill was coming up. We also know that D.C. was looking at tax increases for next year. So he's been talking in recent months, including back in September, that he was probably going to start selling in the fourth quarter. This was certainly a way to generate press and maybe alleviate some of the concerns about him doing it or why he's doing it.
1: Yeah, you know, but but my first thought when I saw it, Robert, was a little more sort of. I don't want to say conspiracy theorist, but certainly the idea that, that Musk may be trying to teach DC a lesson, right? Because we have talked about it. Tesla is not a stock. It is a cult. It is it is the stock market in many ways, particularly with options, whatever. If Tesla's stock were to drop, the overall market could take a hit. And I wonder if Mr. Musk was trying to say to Congress, okay, you want to do this, you want to come after my peeps, meaning the super, 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 super rich. But we can take down the market with us in a small way. Or am I just getting way too into the weeds there?
6: No, not at all, Brian. I, I think you're right in the sense that he used something that he was going to have to do anyway for economic reasons to make it political theater, to make it something that not only galvanized his base, so to speak, but also poked at Washington. And you saw Senator Ron Wyden, who came up with that proposed tax on unrealized gains, saying over the weekend it shouldn't be up to a Twitter poll to decide whether the wealthy pay taxes. But look, the bottom line is here, $15 billion is a huge tax bill. It's going to be hard for people to argue after this that Elon Musk doesn't pay his fair share.
1: Yeah, I mean, why use a, uh, a feather? When you can use a cudgel, I suppose, there. We'll see if Congress reacts. No one's going to feel sorry for them, but we'll see what happens with the market. Robert Frank on another bizarre Elon Musk story. Robert, we appreciate it, brother. Thank you. All right. All right. As we head to break here on WEX on this Monday, one big money mover today is Disney. Are they getting desperate for streaming customers? Disney offering one month of Disney Plus for just a buck $1.99. Its promotion runs through today through Sunday. Disney normally charges $7.99 a month for Disney+. Plus. They say they will provide other offers to entice customers to sign up, including early entry into their theme parks. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back and good Monday morning. I am Brian Sullivan coming to you live from London. And we will be here all week long hosting the show and bringing you more about the UK and Europe's potentially crippling energy crisis this winter and what lessons it may have for the United States as we manage our clean energy transition. That is all day today and this week as well. And a beautiful shot. It's going to be a beautiful week here in London. And by the way, with international travel reopening, come on over. I'll buy you a pint All right, but right now we have got a show to do. So let us get to it and get a look at your Monday money futures. They are mixed right now. We're not seeing a big trade move either way. By the way, Dow futures up 89. NASDAQ is exactly flat. Now coming in and as I said earlier, it's been strength upon strength. All three major averages and the Russell 2000 small caps are trading at record highs. The Dow coming into the week on a five-week win streak. Look at that. I say it and the graphic appears or vice versa. So, we are seeing a lot of strength rallying into year end. We'll see if that can continue. Give us the, the Santa Claus early supply chain fueled rally. There we go. Can't believe I got it off. All right. Now to this morning's more of your top stories, including Berkshire Hathaway's cash pile hitting a new record. Christina Parcinavos is back with more on that. And man, we talk about a cash pile. This is a cash pile.
2: Oh, This is a huge one climbing as Berkshire saw an 18% increase in its operating profit in the third quarter from a year ago. So that figure, now that you want to know, coming in at nearly $6.5 billion thanks to a continued rebound in the conglomerate's railroad, utilities and energy businesses. Berkshire also reporting that its cash pile reached more than $149 billion at the end of the quarter, up from $144 billion in the previous period despite aggressive share buybacks by the company. Just chump change, right? American Airlines is offering to dramatically raise pay for its flight attendants in a bid to avoid a repeat of the recent wave of cancellations during the busy holiday travel season. According to an internal memo seen by CNBC, flight attendants and reserve cabin crew members will receive time and a half during late November and late December trips. The memo also states that if workers have no absences during that period, they will receive another 150% pay. And Marvel's new superhero film, Eternals, pulling in $71 million at the domestic box office during its opening weekend. That debut marks the fourth best during the pandemic era, just behind another Marvel film, Shang-Chi, with its $75 billion opening back in September. Brian, have you seen either?
1: I have not. Neither have I. But I read the comic books as like a kid, these are all, you got to remember, these movies are mostly stories from comic books that came out in the 1980s. Sort of my comic, I'm not kidding, comic sweet spot. So the storylines are kind of, they link up, Christina.
2: I only read Archie's back in, I guess, the late 80s and early 90s. That's about it.
1: <laughs> Jughead never got a, Jughead always got a raw deal. And Calvin Hobbes. Always.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: That's the best. Thank you. Thank you. And you. the far side. Now we're old. Christina, thank you. All right. Now to Washington, where Democrats are gearing up to shift their attention back to President Biden's social spending bill. This after the House signed off on the $1 trillion infrastructure roads and bridges play late Friday. Now, in addition to reaching a deal on that nearly $2 trillion build back better plan, Congress also has the... The obligation to raise the debt limit. Yes, again. So what exactly gets done? For more, we are joined by Andy Blocker. He is head of U.S. Government Affairs at Invesco. Andy, it's always great to have you on. Okay, so let's take the wins where we can. President Biden getting that bipartisan, the BIF, the Biden infrastructure play sort of over the finish line there. Now the big one. You've got the Build Back Better plan, which is primarily social spending programs. Handicap it for us. Does that ultimately get done in some form
3: well that's the question brian i think the answer to the question is it has to get done just like the bipartisan infrastructure bill had to get done politically this has to get done as well so right now biden wants to take a victory lap he wants to say look i campaigned on being able to work with the other side of the aisle with republicans to get things done for the american people he's finally done that now it took a little bit longer than he wanted it to But he's going to be talking about that this week. He does the signing ceremony and all this and talk about all the jobs he's going to create. But now, unless he builds upon that and also gets his Build Back Better reconciliation bill done, they will be all for naught. So look for a big push to get this done. They're looking to try to get it done uh, by Thanksgiving. I think that's a little ambitious, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, and then you've got a December 17th backstop, as I understand it, all sort of tied into this debt limit re-raising as well. There's going to be a lot of horse trading, even in a, in a, in a city known for exceptional horse trading. Who do you think folds? Does Mansion fold first? Do the Republicans get on board with any of this stuff? Do moderate House Democrats like Josh Gottheimer of New Jersey, do they fall into the fold?
3: How does it play out? So first and foremost... Um, there is no way that the Republicans get on board for this. They've made it very clear that, yes, we want to work with you on the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but we want nothing to do with this reconciliation bill. So it's going to be have to be 50 votes, all 50 votes, Democrats in the Senate, plus Kamala Harris. And it's going to be everyone in the House, except I think you can lose three votes. I, it's interesting you mentioned Congressman Gottheimer. I think in the latest bill, there is a salt increase in that bill. And as we know, state and local uh, tax exemption, that's very important for New York and New Jersey and a lot of moderates. And so I think he's not going to be a problem here. I think he's on board to help move this forward. I think the key is going to be for the progressives to figure out which of these programs they're going to do without. They've already gotten rid of or not been able to do community college. They've stuck to the lower end as far as um, children and pre-K, et cetera. And the question will be um, what other things they leave, leave on the cutting room floor. Everybody wants to go after
1: Manchin and Kristen Senna in the Senate and some of the moderate Democrats that I mentioned in the House. But on, it really now seems like the progressive side may be more of the issue. You had 19 of those sort of blocking their votes as well for the first part. They want it to be bigger, and they're kind of suggesting if it's not bigger, we're going to go home. They also hate this SALT deduction cap raise to 80000 because it is, in a, in a sense, sort of a, a tax break. The upper income? Will the progressive wing of the party be able to get on board with maybe people watching in New Jersey right now taking home a little more of their own money?
3: I think that's a great point right now. I think what's happened over the last couple weeks in particular, over the last few months, but particularly after the Virginia race and the New Jersey race, is that we've realized once once again that politics trumps policy. And what I mean by that is there's a political reality here that you can't get everything you want. And as the new New York uh, mayor said, practicality is progressive. You gotta get done what you can get done. And I think the progressives are right now understanding, hey, this is not gonna be six trillion. It's not gonna be 3.5 trillion. It's gonna be somewhere between 1.5 and 2 trillion. Let's get the most we can do so that we can show the American people we're doing something for them. So that's gonna be the debate. There's gonna be a lot of hand wringing. It's gonna be messy Still, it's gonna be some public debating, yep. but at the end of the day, Uh, Democrats understand they either hang together or they hang separately. Wrapping it up with a Ben Franklin quote.
1: I love it at 530 in the morning. Andy Blocker of Invesco. Perfect. Thank you very much, Andy. There's a lot more to do. I'm sure we'll get you back on a lot before the end of the year. Take care. All right. On deck. Walmart jumping on the robotic bandwagon. It wants to go driverless. We'll give you an exclusive look at their autonomous ambitions when WEX returns right after this. All right, welcome back. Walmart is further pulling back that curtain on its driverless delivery ambitions, giving CNBC an exclusive look at the vehicle that will help you get your groceries, no driver included. Frank Collin joining us now with more on Walmart's new test vehicle. Frank.
7: Hey, good morning to you, Brian. You know, Walmart had $208 billion in grocery sales last year and is now looking to gain market share by using fully autonomous driverless trucks to move online grocery orders. Walmart partnered with Gatic, a startup focused on middle mile for B2B trucking. Take a look. These are gas-powered trucks. They operate 12 hours every day. They get loaded at warehouses that are called dark stores. Then they travel to Walmart's neighborhood market locations. They get unloaded, and then they go back for a seven-mile round trip. Aiming to improve efficiency, Walmart's moving to a hub-and-spoke model, operating smaller warehouses that are closer to customers, which requires more restocking. The founder of Gadik expects autonomous tech to become more in demand as more retailers follow this trend.
0: The whole idea is the number of trips, the number of routes uh, increases exponentially. So at scale, if you want to make this shift profitable, you have to use an autonomous solution like ours.
7: So what you have to keep in mind is that grocery is traditionally a very thin margin business, about two to 4%. So other retailers are also testing out this tech. Kroger testing autonomous last-mile delivery with Noro in the Houston area. Kroger also using automation and warehouses to offer online groceries where it does not have a brick-and-mortar location currently. The other supermarket chain, Albertsons, is using remote control delivery with a startup called Tortoise. Here, remote drivers actually use an Xbox controller to operate these vehicles. Tortoise says, Grocers can save just about approximately 60% on delivery cost using their tech. Wedbush estimates $750 billion in spending on commercial AVs over the next five years. If you're looking to invest in the trend, there's a couple stocks you can look at, including Aurora Innovation and Too Simple. Those are two of them. Plus, Embark and a company called Plus will reportedly complete SPAC mergers later this year. We included those tickers there as well. Brian, back over to you.
1: They're gonna, they're gonna, Frank, they're going to run out of names eventually. All right, here's the question, though. So all this robotic t- stuff, it's very cool. Right. Is it seen more as like a way to help the labor shortage or, let's be honest, to cut costs because robots don't take sick days?
7: It, I mean, that's a great point, Brian. So let's start off with Walmart. For Walmart, I talked to them extensively. I asked them, is this a cost-cutting measure? Because, remember, groceries are a thin-margin business. They said, no, this tech is more about increasing capacity and also allowing their associates to spend more time talking to customers, helping customers in the store, because that's another aspect where Walmart is trying to ramp up their service. They want associates to have higher level functions where they're talking to their customers that actually come in the store more often. For other chains, yes, it's a cost cutting measure. I spoke to the people from Tortoise. The idea there for their solution is to cut costs on a two mile grocery delivery. They say the overwhelming majority of grocery deliveries are just within two miles. And for many grocers, it makes more sense to hire or excuse me use robotics as opposed to hire a person to move those groceries
1: yeah i don't know if you'd hire the robot what's your skill set well i don't take vacations and i never have to go to the bathroom it works and i'm always up to code yeah i like i like i see what you did there the code thank you frank collin appreciate it brian you're rubbing off on me (laughs) that's that's not a good thing (laughs) frank take all right man (laughs) All right, President Biden, it's, it's not punny. President Biden's just-passed infrastructure bill contains $17 billion to upgrade the nation's ports and strengthen supply chains. But the billion-dollar question is whether the money is going to do anything to ease the crippling supply chain crunch and logjam in the near term, because the situation is getting worse, not better, and according to a new report from RBC. Let's talk with one of the authors of that report, Michael Tran of RBC. Michael, it's good to have you on. Um, 17 billion, you know, we DC likes to throw money at the problem, that's fine, except by the time that money goes through the system and people fight and argue over how to implement it, and then it's finally implemented, I'll probably be a grandfather. Is there anything that, and hopefully that won't be soon, is that going, is there anything in the near term that's going to fix this other than just time?
8: Right, Brian, it, it's such a great question. I mean, look, infrastructure plan you know it's also been a month since biden implemented the 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 call to arms where he said all these ports you know port of la long beach needs to operate 24 hours a day seven days a week but at this point we think a lot of it is is really political theater political grandstanding because you know we have to get all the gifts under the christmas tree ahead of Christmas, right? And we only have a short six weeks before we do that. So it gave him really a chance to look presidential. But to your point, it's ultimately just time. I think what's really important here is from our analysis, which is done by a team called Digital Intelligence Strategy, where we effectively look at macro trends powered by big data, we try to tackle the supply chain issue by looking at geospatial analytics. And what we're seeing is it's now taking about 7.7 days for a single ship to move through the port of L.A. and wow. Long Beach and out the other side. And this compares to a month ago when that number was about 6.4 days. And, you know, pre-supply chain issues, that number took about 3.6 days. So what we're seeing is these, these times are really doubling versus historically normal levels. And we're all using big data, uh, data science to be able to really quantify the previously unquantifiable, Brian.
1: It's really interesting stuff. By the way, I mean, political theater, Michael, I mean, you, you got to say you're doing something, right? It's like $130 billion to, quote, reopen schools right. when most of the money is not going to be spent for years. But you got to try to convince people you're doing something. This number on this time of turnaround you did is really, mm-hmm. really important. Now, these are huge ships, the biggest in the world that come into L.A. and Long Beach. I was at the Port of Charleston earlier this year. Yeah. They'll do a, a midsize ship in two days, right. you know, two to right. four for the larger ones. So think about that nearly eight days to get a ship in, unloaded, and loaded, and out. I mean, how bad right. could this get? And
8: why do you think it's not getting better, Michael? Right. So, Brian, this is a great question. So what we do, and, and when I say we're using big data to be able to quantify some of these metrics, because it's really one thing to look into or take an aerial shot of the port of L.A. and Long Beach and say, holy cow, there's a lot of ships in that backlog. But it's another way to really quantify it. So what we do here is we effectively look at effectively look at three metrics. Now, number one is we're able to quantify the labor shortage to a degree by looking at uh, foot traffic along the port of LA and Long Beach on shore. How many workers are there? And we we estimate right now that there's probably about a thirty percent um, labor shortage. Now, the second thing that we're able to do is we're able to. Uh, use geospatial analytics to draw a geofence mm-hmm. around the waterborne part of the port and so effectively we draw a boundary around the port and we're able to then use yep. ais so transponders on these ships to measure when these ships are entering our boundary and when they're exiting our boundary and that's how we're able to really do the math and like i said wow right now our number is showing 7.7 days to turn around the ship
1: Really interesting stuff and using big data to figure this out. Hopefully, this is just the, the last peak of the holiday crunch. I can't imagine it getting any worse, but it could. Michael Tran of RBC, great stuff. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks All for
8: right. having me, Brian. On
1: deck, Grace Capital's Kate Fattis is here with why she is starting to poke around shares of one absolutely obliterated real estate stock. Dow Futures, they're 75. We're back right after this. All right, welcome back to the show and to the markets. And with stocks at all-time highs, investors are looking to watch what could possibly fuel another rally through the year's end. Now, there's a number of possible drivers out there. You got your building off Friday's better-than-expected job data. You got the Fed finally rolling out its tapering playbook, so that unknown is now known. You got earnings 13 S&P 500 and Disney reporting this week. Or could it be that government spending with the president's infrastructure bill is finally going to come to fruition, adding about a trillion more cash into the supply chain and economy over the next few years? Let's find out. Kate Faddis, Grace Capital founder and CEO. Kate, good morning. Good to see you again. Or there's a there's a fifth option that we didn't put on the board. And don't tell anybody it could be there's more buyers than sellers because stock market strength can be get strength. Can it not? Everybody's loving stocks right now.
0: Everybody's loving stocks right now. Thank you for having me, Brian. I don't know what's going to stop the stock market. Good news, bad news. The market just goes up, 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 up. We're enjoying it.
1: When you throw a couple trillion dollars in Fed easing and quantitative easing and build back better, whatever you want. I mean, and there's four trillion in cash already sitting around globally, Kate, as much as you kind of hold your nose about it. It's hard not to be a bull, especially as the number of stocks over time continues to shrink through buybacks. More money chasing fewer
0: things. In a zero interest rate environment, what, what, this is the perfect storm. Where else are you going to put your money? There's more money. At, because of the pandemic, there is an extra, I believe, $2 trillion, $2.3 trillion that Americans have in their pockets. Europeans have a similar amount. And they want to spend... Mm. Markets going up.
6: Well,
1: this energy crunch in Europe could be could be taking some money out of Europeans' pockets. We'll do that all week here. For now, though, you might have heard my tease that you were poking around an obliterated real estate stock. That stock is Zillow. I mean, it's been cut effectively in half. Their automated home buying thing was a disaster. They sold 7000 homes. Why are you kind of thinking you're not buying it? It sounds like. But you're but you're looking at it.
0: We're looking at Zillow. Think about it. It hasn't been cut in half since its peak. It's down something like 70%. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Brian. I think it's one you have to take. So let's talk about what happened. The company believed it could sell real estate. It could flip properties with AI. Guess what? It can't. It discovered it cannot. You had what's called adverse selection. If someone was willing to sell to Zillow, Probably they couldn't get a better price. They have $3 billion of real estate on their books that they need to offload. They've written down their portfolio by $300 million. I never cared for this business. The real money at Zillow came from all of its billions of annual users, daily users, and mm-hmm. its TFT division, where it pays commission for realtors, for lead generation. I think the company has real value. It's now trading at seven times its TMT revenue. This is a buy.
1: Wow. Strong case for Zillow, the Z. Very quickly, Kate, Texas Instruments. We don't have time. Give us one, set, one sentence why you like them.
0: Texas Instruments is a great story that keeps working. It's gotten away from the semiconductor cycle, Moore's Law. You've got to buy Texas Instruments. They pay a dividend. They make commodity, very cheap um, semiconductors for anything. 2.4% dividend, make a there ton of free go. cash flow.
1: We'll call it BBS, boring but sexy. And a stock, Texas Instruments and Zillow, Kate Fattis and Grace Capital. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, folks. That does the press here in Worldwide Exchange. We'll see you back here live from London tomorrow as well. I'll see you on Squawk Box as well. The whole team picking up the coverage next. Take care. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only
4: on CNBC.